0: city is shutting down the number of coronavirus cases in tokyo has more than doubled in the past week
1: as residents of tokyo adjust to social distancing and self-quarantine in response to the coronavirus pandemic some may recall another time when fears of an invisible pathogen pervaded the city
0: Good 25 years ago, on March twentieth, 1995,
1: members of the Aum Shinrikyo religious group carried out the Tokyo sarin gas attack, killing 14 and injuring thousands of others. Since then, the group has remained in the news, with the arrest of the final fugitives of the attack coming not until 2012, and more recently, the execution of group leader Asahara Shoko. And five others in 2018. Yet, with coverage of the coronavirus pandemic dominating the news, the 25th anniversary of the incident received only passing attention. What was Aum Shinikyo and why did they carry out the attacks? What explains Aum's gradual shift from religious teaching to violence? How do narratives of Aum Shinikyo change when we look at less recognized members, most notably the women of Aum? And finally, how did media coverage of the 25th anniversary compare to that of five years ago on the 20th anniversary? I'm Tristan Grunow, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on the sarin gas attack and the women of OM, I talked with Dr. Erica Buffelli, Senior Lecturer in Japanese Studies at the University of Manchester and co-author of Dynamism and the Aging of a Japanese New Religion, Transformations in the Founder, published by Bloomsbury in 2018. I started by asking Dr. Befele to briefly introduce OM, as well as the attack.
0: So on March 20, 1995, five members of a religious group that's called OM Sinikyo enter five lines of the Tokyo subway at the time of the morning rush. So when when lots of people were in this train and they were carrying plastic bags containing sarin gas in liquid form and umbrellas. And at prearranged station, they punctured the bag and released the nerve agent, and they left the station. And outside, other members were picking them up and driving them away. So the event is, is now known as the Tokyo Sarin Attack. So the that is in Japanese is the Chikatetsu Sarinjiken. And in total, as I mentioned before, 14 people lost their lives, and thousand were injured. So in the in the week following the attack, that was as you can imagine a terrible shock in Japan. The um, police raided the the facilities of this religion organization all, all over the country, uh, arrested hundreds of members, and all the material and document was confiscated. Until in May, 16th of May, the leader was finally arrested in their group compound that was in a small village close to the Mount Fuji. And in October of the same year, the, the religion organization lost its legal status. And then the following year, were declared bankrupt. So uh, media reports starting to try to understand why this happened, who were these people, because up to that time, there has been some coverage about ARM, but there were not the many study on, on that organization. And so that was also a lot being published on these early years about the story of the group and the leader.
1: You mentioned that this group had hundreds of members around the country and your own research is on Japanese religion, so perhaps from a religious studies perspective, can you tell us more about this group Om Shinikyo that
0: carried out the attack? Yeah, definitely. So Om Shinikyo, that means the Om Supreme Truth, was founded in 1984 by Azahara Shoko, and it started actually as a small yoga group. A Moliogra Center. And in the span of a few years, it developed into a complex organization that included Buddhist teaching, yoga practice, but also very apocalyptic, millenarian, catastrophic thoughts and ideas, but also very extreme austerities. What is interesting, but not unusual with new religion, and the, the changes happen very quickly in the span of a few years. But that is quite common in the dynamics of the beginning of a, of a religion when there are a lot of changing happening in the teaching, especially in the first few years. But the group didn't start, as the case most of the time, as a violent organization. So as I mentioned before, the first group was just very handful group of members. And then the teaching at the beginning was mainly around the idea of awakening the kundalini or awakening this energy in say you through yoga practice. And there were two other main concepts that were important throughout Aum. There was the idea of transcending life and death, what the idea of liberation that they called the and the idea of satori, of enlightenment. That were the two main concepts. And uh, the idea at the beginning was actually to create this group of people that would save all the other people. So there was also this idea of saving the world. But then the violence at the same time started quite early on. And the first episode uh, was already in '89 when one member died by accident for the extreme austerity. And after that, another member who knew about that wanted to report it, and then it was killed because of that. So the the violence started escalating from then, And at the same time, there was, the group started uh, a a series of tension with the outside society and was mainly due to the fact that comparing with other religion organization, ARM had a kind of a strong requirement of of the member. They wanted to become renouncing. That is, entering the organization and living commune, they had to renounce to everything. So they, they drop out of school, they left their job, they left their family. So this creates, understandably, tension with parents and with, with the family of some of these members. Not all of them became and Not all of them lived in commune. They were around a 1,000 of them in 1995. But this tension with, with the society started quite early on, and this also led to a very brutal crime. There was the kidnapping of a lawyer, Sakamoto, and his wife and, and his little child, and they were kidnapped and killed by OM because Sakamoto was supporting the family of our of member to put together a case against the organization. From there on, there was this escalation of violence that then resulted in more and more millenarian idea, or the idea that the society was not something to be saved or something to be destroyed. And uh, the idea of more and more, uh, the the sermon started to talk more and more about evil society, coming of Armageddon, the salvation of only the true believers, etc. And this was also paired with a series of failures. For example, they ran for the election in the 90 and it was a total failure. So this idea that the, the external society would actually hating it was not liking them and and the group was not growing in a sense as much that they hoped so there was uh, internal and external dynamics then led to this escalation of violence paired probably with some some uh, scholars think also a, a deterioration in the state in the mental state of the leader himself
1: and as you mentioned the group has been in the news recently again not only because of the anniversaries, but also with the execution of of the leader, Asahara Shoko in 2018, and a few years before that, the rest of the last remaining fugitives of the attack, including Naoko Kikuchi in 2012, you know, this came out in the news, it, it kind of recalled for people that there were not only women in the group, but women in the attacks themselves. And I understand your recent research has been looking at some of these women who were in the group.
0: Yeah, the, the reason why I started being interested in, in the women in armies is because most of the narrative about OM has been dominated by male voices. And this is because the early memoir about the OM members was mainly written by male members. But also because because a lot of the attention in the study and the media has been mainly on, on the main members because they were the ones that were more involved in the extreme crimes, in, in the sarin gas attack, in the fabrication of chemical weapons. Women tended to not be involved in that. But I also thought there was another reason. Were, the other reason was that women are often presented in arm um, as being that this manipulated, beautiful young woman that has no agency, but they were just following what the leader told them. And I thought that that was a bit of reductive representation of those women, also because three out of the five of the high-ranked member-in-arm that the, the top-ranked was called Seitaishi, the sacred Grand Teacher, were women. So it was Asahara's wife, Tomoko their daughter, Rika, and Ishii Hisako, who was considered the first disciple, but she was also in charge of finances, so quite an important role. And I think that women played an important role inside the organization as teacher, but also in the training for austerities. And the, the austerities in home included beating, included pushing your body to very extreme practice. So they might not have done the killing, but you know they may have a role in kind of conceiving and uh, accepting violence in in a certain way, or, or kind of a pain as a way to achieve enlightenment. That it was quite strong, you know, teaching. So I was quite interested on in that, or, or try to understand a little bit more what was their role in in the organization, and I tried to do that through also the narrative of the ex-members, so to talk about the people who have left the organization, but a specific group of people, not the one that joined the splinter group, not the one that went into uh, secular life, and neither the one that joined the more anti-cult movement and ideas. But a specific group of women that they left the organization, they didn't feel they could stay in after 1995, but they have been completely rejected um, and they are in a sense stuck in this kind of feeling out of sync uh, with, with the rest of the society, but also with how OMIS is now or the splinter group. So these are the, the group of people I'm particularly interested in.
1: In the midst of this coronavirus pandemic around the world, news coverage is obviously focused almost exclusively on the coronavirus. So could you talk about what kind of coverage has there been? Maybe I just missed it in the news. But of the coverage that you've seen, how has the event been covered? And even has coronavirus impacted the coverage of the event in the media?
0: Okay, I'll start with a confession. So despite this being one of the main team in my research... And when the 20th anniversary happened uh, five years ago, I was really you know, update about everything that was happening and uh, all the coverage in Japan. And I also organized an event in in Manchester with my students. This time, this year, I was lightly distracted by the current event and there was other priority going on. But nonetheless, I checked uh, what kind of coverage the media in Japan were doing about uh, the anniversary. And it was much, much less than five years ago. So what's happened in the day was that a memorial service was held uh, in one of the train station in Tokyo. that was affected by the sarin gas attack in 1995. And there was a moment of silence at 8 a.m. And one of the main person there was Takahashi Shizue, who has been one of the spokesperson of the victims of the sarin gas attack. And what I found quite interesting was that in her speech, she mentioned that this year was the victim organization from now on, we no longer organize memorial gathering. And she was hoping that this would be taken over by the government and that she wishes to continue to honour the memory of her husband quietly. So it was kind of the end of her activities as, as a spokesperson. The coverage in the news focuses on that, but also a lot of focus was this year on the victims, about the story of the victim, but also because at the beginning of March, on the 10th of March, one woman, Asakawa Sachiko, was 56 and was bedridden with severe brain damage following the gas attack. So since 1995, she died and she is the 14th victim of the gas attack. So the coverage... Was quite a lot about her story and the story of the other victims, comparing to five years ago when when a lot of focus on the media was still about um the members, the leader, so the story of the organization. And I think the other important point to remember that what's happened in these five years was the execution of the leader Asahara Shoko and twelve other ARM members in July 2018. So in a sense the, that was a very defining and, and concluding act for ARM uh, with, with the all the old members that were in death row executed. And some of the commentator at the time about why that happened in 2018, there was also the idea that Om represented one of the most painful moments of Japanese history of the Heisei era, and the execution happening before the abdication of the emperor and the starting of what we now know is the Reiwa era was a way to conclude the Heisei and, in a sense, conclude this very painful chapter and restart with the new era.
1: I'm Tristan Grunow, and this has been Japan on the Record, the podcast where scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Hosted and produced by Tristan Grunow of the Council on East Asian Studies at Yale University. Thank you for listening.